Welcome to another Break It Down for Brackens podcast. Today we get to talk to Stephen Smith. He is running for governor in the state of West Virginia. Um, me and Stephen go back five or six years when we were working with nonprofits, helping influence um, positive growth and uh, community organizations across the state. Um, this guy's got a lot of energy. He's been running. He's already been running for a year, I think. Maybe like a two-year-long uh, campaign. But let's see what Stephen has to say. This guy right here, Major General Lupin Rolo Brackinson, he interrupts the conversation numerous times, and now he's interrupting this intro. So, thank you, Lupin, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Let's hear what Stephen has to say about running for governor. Hello, everybody. Here we are with Stephen Smith. He is running for governor in West Virginia. Stephen, thank you for being on the Break It Down for Brackens podcast. No, man, it's a treat. Thank you for having me. As I probably mentioned in the introduction, Stephen and I go back about five or six years um, from back in working with nonprofits and things and helping to influence um, people around the state to build culture, to live healthier or more positive lives. Um, I'm still a small business owner, so I don't always have a lot of bandwidth, but Stephen has really stepped up his bandwidth running for governor. So Stephen, kind of take us out of the gates here. Tell us about yourself and what you're doing. Sure, my name is Stephen Smith. I was born in Charleston, West Virginia four years ago. I'm running to be your governor. And maybe the biggest difference about our campaign is that we actually don't think that one governor is the answer. It's gonna take all of us. So our campaign has recruited 93 other people to run for office with us. None of us take corporate PAC money. All of us promise to never cross a picket line. All of us promise to never hide from a debate. That what we're trying to win is a people's government in West Virginia, a government where the people who actually work the hardest and who sacrifice the most are the people who get to write the laws and decide the budget. We don't have that government right now, but if we all come together, we can build it. And so far, it's working. Uh, not only have we recruited these 94 candidates, but I'm winning in every public poll, and we've raised more individual donations than anybody who's ever run for governor in West Virginia. And it's because we aren't bought and paid for by the traditional political elites. That was all so loaded. There's so many things to break down in there. Um, but I think one of the most important components of what I, I need to learn and again, I hate, sometimes I seem a little dense or I'm not picking up all the pieces all the time. No, bring it on, I'm excited. But I can always nod my head in conversations. You know, Stephen, what does a governor do? Who is it in charge of? Who does it answer to? How much power, how do we know we're even yelling at the right person if we're frustrated? Yeah, I mean, the governor is a good person to yell at if you're gonna choose one. And the governor pretty clearly is the person in public office in West Virginia who has the most power. I'll go through some of the formal things they do, and then we can get into some of the informal things. Um, the biggest formal powers that the governor has uh, are related to the executive branch of government. The governor essentially hires the executive branch of government. So when you think about your highways, when you think about the Department of Environmental Protection, the Department of Health and Human Resources, uh, the DMV, right? uh, the Department of Commerce, if you're a small business owner, all of those different agencies of government, and to a large extent, education as well, and the arts and so on and so forth, those are all positions that answer to 
the governor, the head of the executive branch. Uh, that being said, what we often see from a governor, and this gets into sort of how we can use the office to serve the people, is that usually what happens is a governor becomes governor, they get elected, they call up a couple of lobbyist buddies from Charleston and they say, all right guys, go pick the next government. And wouldn't you know it, they put, pick more of the same lobbyists and uh, political elites that were in there before and nothing really changes. That normally the governor serves the person and people and companies that put him in office. And that's not you and me, right? Uh, the people making giant donations, the people who are the best friends of most gubernatorial candidates who are people who have a ton of money, often work someplace else or control lobbyists representing companies that work someplace else. So when they hire their government, pretty much it's the same people that serve those interests rather than ours. Well, instead, there's nothing in the law that says you have to hire a couple of lobbyists to pick your whole government and keep things the same. Instead of doing that, what we'll do, and this is in our plans, which you can take a look at at wvcantwait.com, plans written by and for the people of West Virginia, over 197 town halls. What we'll do instead is seat taxpayer councils. Uh, these are councils made up of the people who are actually impacted by those agencies. So to choose the next head of the Department of Commerce, we're going to have union officials and small business owners and small business employees picking the next head of the Department of Commerce, choosing the policy priorities for that agency, choosing the budget of that agency. And then, uh, you know, the same thing for the Department of Environmental Protection. You have farmers and surface owners choosing the head of that agency. Health and Human Resources, you'd have veterans and senior citizens, foster families, people with disabilities, choosing the head of that agency. Fast forward 10 weeks, we're seating the new government, and instead of inaugurating one guy, you inaugurate all of those taxpayer councils to stay in place and serve as a watchdog over those agencies. You know, right now, and we're seeing this, if you're a small business owner, you're someone who's unemployed, and you can't get your benefits right now because the agencies aren't doing what they're supposed to do, who do you call? I mean, you can call the official number as much as you want. People have been waiting in some cases. I've had people wait three, four hours before someone picks up. We've had people making hundreds of calls before they get through. Well, in our government, there will be a group of citizens who sits above the head of that agency. Because we don't think the head of the agency is the most important person. We think the people who that person serves are the most important people. So in, in our government, you'll be able to call a fellow citizen who literally has the ear, um, someone who has the power to recommend the hiring or firing of that person. So uh, that's an example of one thing that a governor does and how we can make it even better. Another thing that the governor does and how we can make it better is that a governor submits the budget to the state legislature. So the legislature gets a lot of the uh, shine, a lot of the spotlight, right? When you hear about political news, it's often a debate that happens on the floor of the legislature, the state house or the state senate. But at the beginning of the legislative session, what kicks off that session is that the governor submits a draft budget to the legislature. And then the legislature has a ticking clock. They have 60 days to reform and edit and pass laws that then uh, produce a final budget. And then the governor gets a whole nother crack at it. They can 
line item veto parts of that budget. If there's something that doesn't make sense, they take the red pen, they go, nope, we're not gonna do it. So the governor has an enormous amount of power influencing and shaping and putting forward a vision for what the budget is. Now again, most years, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, really they got there because of they were supported by these giant corporate interests. So they get into office, they click copy and paste on the old budget, maybe tweaking a few things here and there, nothing really changes, the legislature does their work, and the machine stays greased for these out-of-state corporations. Well, let, me, let me interrupt for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if I was, for example, if I was taking over another business, another painting business, I own a painting business, and, and I stepped in there and I saw, I mean, my business is running good and I think my ideas for how I'm running my business is good. If I take over another business through acquisition, let's say, and I go in there and I say, you know what, you guys just operate the way you want to for the way it's been because it's easier for me. Or I might be scared of change, right? I'm scared of kind of shaking things up and restructuring how things are done. Is it possible that that model is just kind of based out of fear or or nerve nerves nervousness to fail i guess because of changing things so dramatically that's what i imagine a governor who yeah i mean i think that's a i think that's a kind reading of it sure some of it is uh respect over what's come before some of it is fear that they don't want to offend someone but when what we're dealing with, this isn't just a business, right? This is politics. This is where we decide whether or not a certain group of people gets treated the same under the law. This is where we decide whether a certain group of people is going to eat. This is where we decide whether all businesses are going to have a level playing field or not. And when you have, uh, if you think of government as a business in this analogy, what we have is a business that uh, doesn't serve our true customers, right? It's like, a business that uh, instead only serves two of its customers instead of all 1.8 million of its customers. But and when that's between, the case, yeah, right, big commercial you've got to come in and shake things up. Right. So as a painter, I could go do these big industrial and commercial projects that there's only six per year. Over here, I have 300 residential projects. I'll just do all these because I make more money, whereas these people don't see the quality. I got you. Right. And as a small business owner, that's a rational, reasonable decision. As a government, it's a moral failing, right? You are there to represent 1.8 million people. And if you choose to only serve those who are your personal friends or those who lined your pockets, then you are failing the people of the state. You're failing the purpose of government. And the tricky thing, and this is what we're up against as a campaign, the tricky thing is the people of West Virginia aren't fools, right? We see that our government doesn't belong to us anymore. And when we come along and we say, look, it doesn't have to be this way, a lot of people say, are you kidding me? It's always been this way. And they're right. And so we have to acknowledge that people are right to be fed up with government, right to believe that uh, things can't be any different. Um, but we also have to invite them in and say, well, you know what, if enough of us come together and we aren't funded by these same old same old crowd, and so we're not accountable to them. We really can do some incredible things, uh, but we have to come together. We can't just play the partisan games. Uh, we have to have real ideas. We have to go listen to people more than just gab. And when we do all of those things, 
in a democracy, every now and then you have a shot at winning it that really, truly does respond to the people. And that's what we're trying to do. It's not easy. But in this moment where people are so frustrated and so desperate and so fed up with the traditional leadership of both parties in many cases, there is this opportunity, there's this window where we can really change things. That's great. And that segues me kind of to my next uh, topic I want to talk about. You, you mentioned leadership. You know, you're, you're running for one of the top, if not the top leadership position in a state. Um, what would you, reaching all the way back, maybe through your uh, professionally, personally, maybe through education, what would be one or two stories you would share where you were really inspired by somebody or 15 years ago, somebody planted a seed. Can you take me back to the roots of what would entice you to rebuild the government of a state, which it kind of blows my mind, but that's, where did it all start, do you think? Um, one place it starts is with my parents. Um, watching my uh, dad help start the West Virginia Coalition for the Homeless and Public Defender Services, choosing a life in public service, watching him do that, watching my mom raise all kinds of people, not her, just her own kids, but foster kids and extended family members and neighborhood kids. The local elementary school would literally just send its most troubled children to our house as a sort of de facto after school program. So a lot of uh, what I try to live up to is stuff I learned from my folks. Um, the other uh, defining moment, I think for me as a 20 year old uh, was, you know, I grew up in West Virginia, my family then moved to Texas. Um, and then I got this opportunity to go to Harvard. And it was this like incredible thing. I had to kind of wrap my mind around it. Like, and, and on the one hand, it was this really incredible opportunity. It felt almost unreal. Like, how can I be here and how I got to soak all of this up. On the other hand, I got introduced really quickly to some of the students and workers on campus. And we began what became a four year long campaign to win a living wage for workers on campus. So cooks and janitors and security guards. Meanwhile, you've got these uh, obscenely uh, beautiful and expensive campus grounds. You've got a, an account with billions of dollars in an endowment just sitting there. Uh, you've got some of the you know, wealthiest donors and corporation members running the school. Meanwhile, the people who do the important work of uh, feeding and keeping our students safe were making poverty wages. And we thought that was wrong. We thought it was unjust. Um, and the turning point was, you know, for the first two or three years of the campaign, we did all the things you're supposed to do, right? We did our research and we made our nice arguments and we got academics involved and we got petitions and we held rallies and we went to meetings and we did all those things you're supposed to do. We played it safe and we were nice and we were smart and we were polite and we were getting our asses kicked, right? That that's the thing in politics, things don't change. This is what I learned that has changed the next 20 years of my life is that things don't change because you're nice. Things don't change because you do your homework. Things at a fundamental level in society only change when enough people come together, challenge those in power and have enough power of their own people power to really flip things upside down. And it's not easy to do, it often fails, but that work, the work of joining people together across different backgrounds, fighting for something you believe in, taking risks, um, and every now and then breaking through, that's when I got um, 
the opportunity to first do that work in a meaningful way and that I saw that it was the only way that real systemic change was possible. So the story for us was after three years of banging our head against the wall, the university said, uh, we've heard your concerns. You know, they did that serious space. We've heard your concerns. We take it very seriously. And uh, we are going to provide these workers with museum passes and other ways that they can lift themselves up by their bootstraps. And we were just like, this is an insult, right? These people are working 80, 90 hours a week, can't afford health insurance, and you're gonna throw museum passes at them? And it was at that moment that we realized that the same old tactics, that playing it safe wasn't gonna work. And we began planning what became a 21-day sit-in in the president's office that uh, we, we didn't know it was gonna be 21 days. We thought three or four days would force them to the table, but. Uh, after three weeks of living in the president's office and drawing national attention and uh, labor unions and faculty members and students and getting all this support, we finally forced the university to the negotiating table. And that began another one-year process in the middle of which I ended up getting arrested alongside cooks and janitors and security guards uh, to try to win a final agreement that eventually guaranteed a living wage for all campus workers. It survives to this day. If you're a, a worker at Harvard, you're making at least 17 or $18 an hour plus benefits. And it changed my whole life. Uh, it, I, I got to see the joy that comes from working with people across different race and class and geographic backgrounds. I got to see what happens when people are willing to take courageous action together. And I learned most importantly, that change doesn't happen because of one person. Um, I was one of 52 people that went inside that building. I was one of 27 people who stuck it out. There were hundreds more outside that the kind of change we want, the kind of government we want only comes about when a whole bunch of people come together and push from the bottom up. Oh, this is, you're making it so easy for me, Stephen, because it's just every time you wrap up, it leads me to the next question, which Rallying people, I mean, as a, as a founder of Bros and Bras, I had incredible influence all of a sudden in health and wellness in Jefferson County, and we still continue to have such a great, successful culture. It's not just a, a, a movement, it's a culture now, and it breathes on its own. Just from what I've seen from the outside, and, I, and I've, I've been to some of the meetings, and I've, I've met a few people who are running for office that you've inspired them to run, you've even had like coaching classes on how to run and how to get set up to run for office months ago. And the fact that your campaign ultimately will be two years long fully, if I, if I understand it correctly, but I kind of understand why you would do it, but I want to hear why you have put that much effort into helping people run for office. Um, two reasons, two main reasons. Uh, one is that it's the only way to win what we actually want. Uh, that if what you want when you run for office is uh, fame or notoriety or a salary or to help your buddies or to get in the newspaper, you can do that by yourself. Um, but if what you really want is to fundamentally change who has power and uh, who is leading the economy of West Virginia, one person can't do it, right? We look back you know, it wasn't a politician who led the mine wars 100 years ago. It wasn't a politician that led the teacher strike. That kind of bottom-up fundamental change only happens that way. So that's the first reason we do it. 
the second reason is because uh, it's fun as hell. That like, if there's some other parallel universe where our movement would have come together and decided that somebody else should run for governor, and I would have been completely content to just do the candidate recruitment and training stuff. In fact, that's a lot of what I did in my old job that when I worked for Healthy Kids and Families Coalition where you and I met, you know, we basically did three things. One is we worked on Try This and other projects that helped get money and training and funding into communities so that they could start their own small businesses and community gardens and after school programs. The second was that we would send people to the state capitol every year and lobby for things like uh, better school breakfast programs and uh, expanded Medicaid and child abuse prevention. And, uh, and then the last thing we would do uh, is help recruit and train people to run for office, especially the people who were underrepresented. And I love that work. So the fact that I get to do it while also running uh, is like icing on the cake. That For me, there's nothing more exciting or rewarding than watching somebody do something they didn't think they could do. And there are few things that we need more of right now in society than people stepping up to run for office, not just as good people, but as good people who are refusing to be bought and paid for. So that, those are the two reasons. One, because it's the only way we win, and the other is because uh, it's just incredibly exciting and rewarding and fun. I'll say this too, uh, because this is a, a big part of what keeps me going. Obviously, any kind of endeavor like this, um, there's a chance I'm gonna lose uh, my election, right? Uh, there's a chance that uh, something worse than losing will happen. Anytime you're in the public eye like this, you know, people are gonna, people have already started coming after people I love and uh, making online threats and all that silliness that comes with politics. And one of the biggest things that keeps me going, honestly, like when I can't sleep at night is I think to myself, if nothing else, right, even if I lose, even if I get disgraced somehow during the middle of all this, even if people come after my family, if at the end of this, the worst case scenario is that we get 30 or 40 of these people into office, that's the worst case scenario, right? There's 94 of us. Worst case scenario, 20, 34 of 40 of us are gonna get into office. If that's the worst case scenario, then that's a pretty damn good way to spend two, three years of my life. And it's a pretty damn good start to building whatever comes next, because this is a generational project. It, could, it took generations to get into the mess we're in. It's gonna take a generation or two to fully get out of those messes. You know, I, another really great answer. The, um, I have to thank you for coming on the podcast. And the reason why is, as we get closer and closer to the primary, I'm seeing more and more of the signs in yards or at the intersections and off the side of the highway. And you can tell all of a sudden who has the dominant sign game. And I've been in Jefferson County 10 years, and I have not met, I think, 90% of them face-to-face. -face. Now, many of them, many of the ones I have met have come on the podcast. And this, this medium allows me to know who I'm voting for or know who I don't want to vote for. Um, and there's, a, there's quite a few people running for governor, but there's no way to connect. And I, I have to say thank you for coming on and connecting with me on this because it's helping me understand who somebody is and what they feel about it. And your answers are too good to not believe. 
and I know you personally, so it's like I can I can come get in your face and say, Stephen, what happened to that thing we were talking about? Whereas random other candidates, there's just no way to. I feel like you're you're reachable to some extent. I guess is what I'm trying to say. And but thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I mean, this is just uh, thank you for saying that. Just to speak to this for a second. This is personal for me. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. And I, I obviously, uh, I believe it's true. Um, you know, my family doesn't have a lot of money. Um, I, uh, we are now living off of my wife's salary as a public defender. She's an attorney who defends people uh, who can't afford an attorney, right? Uh, we're living off of her salary, doing the best we can. Uh, we've been doing that for a year and a half. I get tiny little contracts here and there to try to pitch in. But we're sacrificing too much to fake this, right? I mean, this isn't, uh, this, this isn't, there are lots easier ways uh, if this were just um, some kind of uh, vanity trip or something like that. Uh, and I like my kid too much to be gone as much as I've been for the last 18 months. We're, we're in it to win it. Well, I get it. I just say like maybe some of your competition just aren't talking at all. It's amazing how few people I've heard anything from you know, maybe besides a, an errant commercial or a billboard. And the ability to reach out to a candidate is extremely valuable because you have a connection, even no matter how brief it would be. I want to go over to the uh, Facebook. I put on 15 minutes before we started this podcast. I said, hey, I want to talk to a governor. Let's see what, what non-party, non-state questions would come through. And Great. The first, Fire away. And the first one is from my buddy, Sean Farrell. We went through Leadership West Virginia together. He had a um, a brother, I believe, who was in politics out of Huntington. I don't know all that backstory, but he uh, the question he and he sent a ton of questions. I'm, I think he's his own segment on this podcast. But um, the the best one I liked was um, it had to do with the census. Uh, he was talking. Well, first he was like, "Would West Virginia be better served by redistricting?" redistricting its 55 counties into 17 counties based on the West Virginia Senate state map and savings from reductions of redundancies would be, I don't know, is that a question? What is the question there? Do you, are you picking yeah, up? Yeah, I, I, I think I know what he's getting at. Okay. Uh, so there's, uh, uh, this is an idea that's been floating around for decades. Uh, the idea of consolidating government uh, that uh, you can make an argument. I think this is the argument he's making that uh, we have too many counties, and as a result, uh, we have too many uh, resources that sort of get stuck in county bureaucracies. Um, one of the ways this often comes up is in schools, right? We have 55 school districts, and a lot of people look at that and say, oh, uh, you know, that's uh, too much money being spent on administration and not enough getting to the classroom. Okay. Uh, I agree with half of that. Uh, so in our plan, our education plan written by educators, we have all kinds of ways that we try to push resources down from state bureaucracy and county bureaucracy down into the classroom. And I agree with that. Whether or not it's time to end counties or um, reduce the number of county governments, I'm not quite ready to go there yet because I think one of the things that happens when we consolidate things is that uh, it sometimes makes sense in the short run financially. You're like, oh, okay, we don't need two of these people in these two counties, we can have one that covers both counties. And obviously we can do some of that that makes sense, but I'm not quite ready to do it in a big way yet 
Because the main thing we've seen historically from efforts to consolidate is that the people it helps the most are the ones who already have power and the people it hurts the most are those who are the most vulnerable. That schools are a perfect example of this. There's been a movement over the last many decades to consolidate schools. You guys don't see it quite as much in the Eastern Panhandle, but in other parts of the state um, where there used to be six elementary schools, maybe there's two, where there used to be three high schools, maybe there's one. And at first you're like, oh, okay, we're gonna put all of the resources in one place so everybody can access the uh, resources and the computers and the different teachers. There's some logic to it. But the other thing that happens is now the most vulnerable kids have to take a bus 90 minutes to get to school instead of walking 10 minutes away. When the parents of those vulnerable kids are trying to get in touch with the school and have a meaningful relationship, it's much harder to do so. We see increasing number of people homeschooling their kids in part because it's harder to physically get to and from school. I'm gonna have less relationship with my kids' teachers if it takes me an hour and 15 minutes to get to uh, parent-teacher day than if I can walk there. And so um, while some of the ideas about sharing resources and finding ways to encourage uh, governments to work together are good, and I think in some places that's good, one example of one place that we think is really valuable, for instance, is our water systems, right? Um, there are more than 690, let this sink in, you'll appreciate this. So there are more than 690 water and sewage systems in West Virginia. So, I'm sorry, this is what? my co-host. This is my co-host. What? Yes, each, yeah, one, each one of those systems has to have their own staffs and governings and boards, everything right. else that is nuts. Um, and so in our water infrastructure plan, uh, we talk about how we can use uh, I'm sorry, state funding and federal grants to encourage people to combine those water systems in just the way you're describing so that we can provide more and better services to more people. Do oh we go God. quite as far as saying there shouldn't be 55 counties anymore? No, but some of the principles are there. Gotcha. Sorry, Steve. My co-host is extremely aggressive and he's actually quite the predator, so he got aggressive with me. I don't understand 60, 690 water systems, but I get where that's where the redundancies would be brought up. And like I said, Sean's got a lot of great questions. Um, this next well, question. Let's do this. While, while we're in question mode, um, send back to Sean and anyone else who's listening now. Uh, here's my phone number, 304-610-6512. My email, which is an even faster way to get a hold of me most of the time, is Stephen at wvcantwait.com. And whoever you choose to vote for, or whoever you're thinking about voting for, reach out to them. I mean, that's my information, I'm happy to talk. We've got this great system where if you send me an email, I'll send you a link back and I'll, you'll get to schedule a time directly into my calendar. But uh, a very simple thing that voters should demand the ability to get on the phone or to communicate directly with anyone running for office in a place like West Virginia. If we can do it in the governor's uh, race, you can certainly demand that of your would-be city councilors and delegates and state senate candidates and make sure they ask to answer your questions directly. If you don't like the first answer, uh, ask again. But that's the very least we can do as people who 
want to work for you. Uh, that, that is something that has come across in every podcast with somebody running for office or somebody who currently holds a position is to let everybody who might listen, hey, they, you can get a hold of me. Give us a call, shoot me an email. And I've tested it a few times because I did have questions for city council or for the mayor or whatever, and, and, and it has worked. So you can get a hold of these leaders. Another great thing about this is that every time I talk to somebody, we find out that they're actually a human too. They're actually real people that live down the street or real people that um, they, they struggle, they, they, have, they have successes, they have challenges. And um, that's another thing that's just really good that, that we are getting across this podcast and I appreciate that. The uh, next question comes from my mother and she is not a West Virginia resident, but she didn't know she was talking to somebody running for governor in West Virginia. She said, does the governor candidate um, hold on. Let me, let me, let me, mom, I'm going to quote you perfectly here. Just so yeah. right. You better not misquote your mother. Uh, are you afraid of Trump? How would you run the state if Trump wanted you to run it another way? For example, would you open the state earlier than you thought it was ready? Even if Trump said it was probably ready, how would you go against the president? Yeah, uh, luckily this is a pretty simple question. Uh, I am running to work for the people of West Virginia. And the, a question, if the two choices are, on the one hand, uh, more West Virginians die, and on the other, less West Virginians die, but somebody I don't know is mad at me, that's a pretty easy choice. Uh, and I, I don't, I think the only reason it seems uh, like a difficult choice is because we think of politics and we're taught to think of politics as this sort of celebrity death match, right? Where uh, your celebrity politician versus my celebrity politician, or are you on the red team or the blue team? And it's all personality driven. And that's why it doesn't work, right? Personality driven politics, celebrity politics serves celebrities, it serves the media, it serves their donors, but it doesn't serve us. And uh, the nice thing about having a campaign that operates the way ours does is that we have to respond in the best interest of the people because it will be the people who gets us into office. Um, I didn't, I'm not wealthy. I can't write myself a million dollar check. Um, we don't take money from corporate PACs or pharmaceutical companies or out-of-state land holding companies. So we have to build this campaign with the dollars and the time from working class West Virginians, middle class West Virginians, small business owners. And because of that, that's who we're going to be accountable to once we're in office. So luckily, because our campaign is built this way, that's a fairly easy question. Awesome. There's another question I ask every candidate that I, for any office, for any position. Um, how do you measure success? How can you tell if you're moving the needle? How can we tell if you're moving the needle? Because I have to assume if you win and, and you're appointing all these executive positions and you're helping build these, these community or these teams that work with those executive positions, I think inevitably change, change will happen and it might be rocky. It might, you know, all change is, but how do we determine if you are, successful in your endeavor? What a great question. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to have 
uh, a vision or a plan. And the thing that's unique about our vision and plan is that it was genuinely written by thousands of West Virginians, literally contains the words and recommendations of more than 11,000 West Virginians. You can explain, see it explain, all online. Explain that to me. Explain what, yeah, what that so, means. Um, as you mentioned before, we started the campaign much earlier than the traditional political season because we felt like the platform that we were running on should be directly resulting from the people of West Virginia. That looked like 197 town halls where we took really good notes and built volunteer teams at the local level. 11,000 conversations. Our county teams went out and had 11,000 conversations with voters saying, what's the first thing you would do if you're governor? What keeps you up at night? We tabulated all of those responses. Uh, we have 39 constituency teams, as you know, small businesses, veterans, seniors, social workers, and each one of those groups doesn't have anybody's name on it, right? It's not veterans for Stephen Smith. It's veterans can't wait. Seniors can't wait. We call our whole project West Virginia can't wait. And we asked those 39 teams. So coal miners helped write our Miners Bill of Rights. Veterans wrote our Veterans Bill of Rights. Educators wrote our education plan. Um, nurses helped write our Workers Bill of Rights. And you can see all of these plans. And then at the end of that process, our county captains and our constituency captains got together in a convention and ratified our platform. The way this speaks to your question is that we have written down exactly what we will fight for. You don't have to guess, and it's not little, small, uh, kind of uh, uh, baby ideas. It's big, bold change, the kind that we actually think West Virginia needs. Uh, things like full cannabis legalization, a massive shift of tax breaks and capital to small businesses instead of to out-of-state corporations that undercut small businesses, uh, a workers' bill of rights, a Mountaineer Service Corps to rebuild the infrastructure, making broadband a public utility, which should have happened 30 years ago. All of these issues, you see exactly where we stand and how we're going to pay for it. So you're going to be able to see how well we do in office uh, based on whether or not we achieve those things. We've said very clearly, this is what we stand for. Judge us by our success in achieving it. But more important than that, instead of just sort of treating it like a spectator sport and following along to see if we, said we, see if we did what we said we were going to do, the most important part of our campaign is that it leads with an invitation that the plans are out there not just so because we hope you'll like them and vote for me and the other candidates. The plans are on our website in clear black and white because we are inviting people to come in, help us fight for them. And even more important than that, if you see any of our plans at wvcantwait.com that don't match your personal experience, that aren't what you want, get in touch with me directly and we'll make it better. And that's an ongoing process of governing with the people of West Virginia so that we fight to really change things. Should I assume you're the only gov governor candidate doing that sort of thing? Because I've never heard of anything like that before, at least yeah. around me. As, as best we can tell, um, there's not really precedent in recent American history of what we're doing with regard to uh, having a group of volunteer leaders and county leaders 
ratifying the platform for a gubernatorial campaign or certainly not for a whole slate of candidates. It's the kind of thing that uh, only happens when government is failing so badly that the people have to kind of come together and say, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves. So, um, so then, uh, we so then definitely people... try to learn from all different kinds of things and people and uh, folks around the country. But we have started to get, as you've seen, some national attention because what we're doing is so, I think, so beautifully West Virginian, so uniquely West Virginian. Okay. So people who are asking questions on my Facebook thread, and when it comes to education, broadband, um, taxes, uh, Conrad brought up heavy industry versus tourism versus renewable energy versus technology services. Basically, you could almost send them to the WestVirginiaCan'tWait.com website to check on that topic that they're interested in to see something that's not happened ever before. It's happening on your website because it's being built by people throughout the state, if I'm understanding correctly. They yep. can go there and learn what your perspective and what West Virginia Can't Wait's perspective is on these particular topics. They can learn what our perspective is. They can learn what our particular policy plans are. They can see how we propose to pay for it. And they can, most importantly, click a link that says, I want to talk to Stephen about this, uh, or just shoot me an email and help us make it better. That's the most important thing is not that we have all the answers. I'm incredibly proud of the process we went through of 197 town halls and 800 visits with small businesses and unions. But all of those ideas can continue to get better and will the more people participate in it. And every single idea in those plans came because some West Virginians said, well, why don't we do this? Or shouldn't we do this? Or what would it look like if we did this? And we said, we should. Can you write that out and send it to us? And so that goes for people who are listening and watching right now is take a look at the plans, hopefully not just as a, a consumer of politics, but as someone who also will help us produce a better politics. Okay, let's, let's tie this back into, um, let's focus a little bit on small business then. Um, as, I, as I probably mentioned in the, in the previous emails, you know, small is my perspective that small business owners, we hustle, we find an obstacle, we knock it down, go around it, go over it, go through it. You know, we typically don't need a ton of help, at least from my perspective. And I know I'm way up in the Eastern Panhandle. I know, you know, it's a different kind of economy than throughout the rest of the state. But whenever I have challenges, whether it's staffing, whether it's uh, taxes, it, all these things. I don't turn to my government and say, what can you do for me? I got to survive it. And I don't want to wait for that slow bureaucracy to help me anyhow. But can you give me some examples of how the governor's office works with state lawmakers or however that system works to make things better for even my little painting business? Well, right now they don't. And that's the most important thing, right? The, right now they don't. That for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, small business owners have been kicked in the teeth by politicians, right? Right before an election, the politicians show up and they eat a hot dog at your stand or they pose with the painter or the t-shirt maker and they say, small businesses are the engine of our economy. And then they turn, in, turn around once they're in office and they serve the people who got them there. And the people who got them there are the large corporations. And, Frankly, this is too often true of both political parties. That's why over the last 30 or 40 years, 
uh, we've seen a huge rise in out-of-state corporations and a huge fall in small businesses. It's completely out of whack. Um, so the first thing that we need to do, government ought to do, is just stop playing favorites, right? That uh, what, as you said, small business owners are kind of made of a particular kind of material that says, I'm just going to bust down any wall I can to make this thing happen. But one of the things that government can do is stop putting up walls for you to have to break down. And that's what we've been doing for a while. What are some of those walls? Well, if you look at the regulations for almost any industry, those regulations are rigged in favor of the giant out-of-state corporations instead of the small business. Um, one interesting example of this are breweries, right? Uh, if you are brewing beer in West Virginia, you've got all kinds of regulations about how you can sell it. You essentially get double taxed uh, when you try to sell your own beer because the rules were built for the big three. Even when you're hiring a distributor as a local brewery, um, you can't exit the contract with your distributor even if you're unhappy with them. That's insane, right? That's government putting up a wall in front of you that you shouldn't have to bust down. And when we do that, uh, it means when we, when we put up those barriers, when government puts up those barriers, it means that small businesses, we have fewer of them, they fail more often, uh, they aren't able to hire as much, they aren't able to grow as fast, and that hurts everyone. That a dollar invested in a small business is going to return two to four times as much money to a local economy as a dollar invested in a large corporation. Think of a bookstore. There aren't a lot of bookstores left. Uh, you've got sort of three ways that you can sell books in an economy. One is through Amazon, where almost none of the wealth you send to Amazon stays in your community. Another is like a local Barnes and Noble or something like that. Well, Barnes and Noble, their accountant is someplace else. If they're gonna have a, a local bakery that serves their cafe, um, they're instead gonna get that contracted through somebody else and on and on and on. But if you've got a local bookstore, the food they're selling is probably coming local. The coffee they're selling is probably coming local. When they need someone to do their booking, they're gonna hire a local accountant. Um, when they want a paint job, right? They're not gonna call some giant firm that's gonna paint all the stores the same all across the country, they're gonna call you. And uh, making a choice to say, all we want is a level playing field for small businesses when it comes to regulations, when it comes to taxes, and when it comes to the availability of capital. We think that when given a level playing field, small businesses are going to crush out-of-state corporations, or at least restore balance. And that is absolutely something government can do. I encourage folks to look at our small business revolution plan written of, by, and for small business owners and employees, and you'll see the beginnings of what we're talking about. But um, that's what government can do. Make sure there's a level playing field, which uh, would take a radical change because for the last 40 years, they've been rigging the game against y'all. Right, you know, one thing, I mean, I've been in business for eight, eight or nine years now, and I've had a couple businesses open and a couple fail and a couple successful, and they're all small. They're all very small businesses with um, one to six employees. So they're not huge, but but definitely, Fair, fairly sized. But one thing I've learned by just watching and watching and watching is that, and I always kind of made, well, what am I trying to say here? For example, 
I got a notification in the mail from Workforce WV that I did not fill out a form that I was supposed to fill out in um, November of last year. Now, they didn't send me a message in December. They didn't send me a message in January. They waited this deep. And it, all it was, was it was a report on what kind of employees I have. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, I also got audited because I did not understand sales tax. Holy crap. And everywhere I go, I find that all, and I mean all business owners of any size, the people who are in the decision-making positions don't know an enormous amount of what they should know. And I know that the, the state SBA is, is in place and there's like four or five districts around and you can kind of go to them. But it's really strange to me that there's no, there's no checklist that I know about that tells you, hey, if you get this size, watch out for these pitfalls. If you get this size, you've got to do this. And don't forget you have to do this. Or maybe the state mails you something and when you're in month three, you're just freaking out trying to figure out if you're going to survive. Maybe that piece of paper just never got filed. Maybe you never even opened it because you're just trying to get houses painted. But that can come back and bite you five years later. And I consider myself someone who's not trying to fly under the radar. I'm trying to do things right. And I have not found the resource that coaches me to be a successful business. And I'll, I'll, I'll segue this a little bit into what downtown Charlestown looks like. I don't want this to sound wrong. I, you know, people are like, oh, we need a business like this and we need a business like that. And I just say, what we need are smart business owners. We need smart business owners that have the bandwidth, the finances, and the knowledge to stay open. Don't pull 18 months, 24 months, or 12 months, and then close. Like, let's get people downtown who are, uh, who, who has the, state level or like the state education is there a three-day class i can go to within the state that says hey if you're opening a business you need to know these three days worth of information and here's your workbook you know so this is such a great question so there's two ways i think about this and you're not alone right this is of course what we've heard over and over again um one way i think about your question is how do you make uh the entire process the entire bureaucracy directly accountable to and literally led by small business owners. Because that's a lot of the problem is, um, you know, uh, it's like what happens when you put politicians in charge of school, right? Bad things happen. Uh, when you put politicians or bureaucrats in charge of small business, um, you get this uh, mountain of paperwork and all of these Byzantine rules. So one of the ways we change that is by this taxpayer council so that, uh, Literally, the person, the people who sit above the head of the agency are the people most impacted, uh, both to hold that person accountable and to be someone that you can contact if you need to. But the other way I think about this is if you were uh, wanting to do a project on your house and you called up a contractor, right, and you said, hey, I need you to take care of this project, right, you would go to that one person, right? You don't expect to get in there and you've got to learn how to pick the paint and you've got to learn uh, before they'll finish this particular part of the roof, you've got to figure out how to do that yourself. And you figure you don't have to go out and hire their workers for them. You call the one person and that one person takes care of it for you. That's how customer service 
works. We all know how that works. And yet somehow in government, you get the exact opposite. Government expects you to be an expert in 15 different pieces of paperwork and 15 different processes and 50 different deadlines. Um, and if you don't know the answer, then you've got to go hunt down 15 different people who all have a job over those 15 different projects. Uh, what we want to get to is a government where you have one person, Kevin, this is your person. They show up when you start your business. They say, hey, congratulations. If you ever need anything, call me. And it's their job. This is way more efficient, right? It's their job to know how to do anything. So that rather than you having to learn how to do 15 things, we teach one person how to do all 15 things. We give them 100 small business owners to be in contact with. And then whenever you need something, you go to one person. This isn't rocket science. Uh, every small business owner we've talked to gave us some idea like this, but it's going to take a little bit of reworking to get there. Um, but that's, we can do that's it. An amazing, that's an amazing option. It's almost like a coach, but it's actually more of my own West Virginia-specific small business procedures guide. They are yeah, it's, my, yeah. You know, it's what we do as citizens, right? You, when you come up with a problem, you think to yourself, well, who am I going to call? You don't think I now have to go become an expert in 15 different things. You say, who do I know could help? And right now, you don't have a, a, a person to call. Imagine, so that's how bad it is for small businesses. Imagine if you're a working class single mom trying to navigate all the different programs and projects and things that are out there, benefits programs to try to take care of your kids. You have to become your own social worker uh, in order to navigate all of this. Why not just have one person who's your person and whatever you need, you call that person, an advocate, whatever you want to call it. Um, unfortunately, I have to get going pretty soon, my friend. This, I feel like we could talk forever. We, we definitely could. And I was just about to ask you, was there anything we didn't cover that we should have? Uh, there's a million things we didn't cover that we should have. And if you're listening to this and you've got one of those things in mind, get in touch with me and we'll continue the conversation. I'll just give it la one last time. My email is Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at WVCan'tWait.com. My phone number is 304-610-6512. The election is June 9th. Uh, you can still register to vote for a couple more days. Uh, if you're just watching this now, you should go register right now because it'll probably be right near the deadline. If you get stuck on any of that, how to vote, where to get your absentee ballot, whatever, you can always go to our website. There's a whole section on how to vote and how to vote safely in this moment. Uh, and mostly just be in touch. If you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, if you just think I'm a raging idiot who needs to be told off for, for whatever reason, get in touch that this is what government ought to be we actually i'll end with this the biggest difference between what we're doing and what other politicians have done for the last forever is that we actually think that the voters of west virginia have the answers we think the voters are smart we think they deserve to be listened to we think they should be the ones leading we think our job is to be led by them and not the other way around and as a result take us up on it. Like that, the only way that works is if people like you who are listening, people like you, Kevin, get curious and start making demands. That's how I can do my job. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot, Steve, and I appreciate you. 
Have you heard of Bracken's painting? I started Bracken's painting back in 2011. We do both residential and commercial painting. We have contractors licenses in West Virginia and Virginia, and we carry all the necessary insurances, like workers' comp, general liability. Uh, we operate a small staff that focuses on meeting the homeowner's needs and project manager's timeline expectations. Uh, we, pri we try to have exceptional attention to detail. If you're interested in doing any sort of commercial or residential painting, please contact Bracken's Painting. More information can be found at www.brackenspainting.com. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com. Today's intro music is a song called Saving Lives and Taking Wives. It is written and produced by Peter Clark, my cousin. Actually, my wife's cousin, but I'll take him as my cousin because he's a pretty cool dude. He um, dropped an album called Peter Clark After Dark. He's been producing electronic, loungy, makeout music for years, and he's been nice enough to let me use it on this podcast. You can reach Peter Clark for bookings or just to hear his music on SoundCloud. Just search Peter Clark After Dark.